I'm Matt Booker. And I'm Dave Laird. And I'm David Herring. Prepare thy maps, travelers. We're heading into the Great Concavity. Very awesome. Welcome to episode 12 of The Great Concavity, and we're joined by scholar from the UK, from Liverpool, David Herring. Dave, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. Dave, uh, it is really great to have you. You're one of the first people we thought of when we launched this podcast that we Mm. really wanted to have on the show, so we're really excited to talk with you today. And I want to give people a little bit of an introduction to you if they are not familiar with your your work. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Dave Herring is the author of a forthcoming book from Bloomsbury called David Foster Wallace, Fiction and Form. He's also the editor of a book he and I kind of collaborated on called Consider David Foster Wallace. And I think he's a lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Is that your title, Dave? That, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Lecturer. Which in the U.S. I think is more akin to like an assistant professor level. Is that correct? From what I understand, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So the title structure is a little different, but you've been... You got your degree from the University of Liverpool as well, and then just started working there. Is that correct? Uh, no, my my deg- well, my degree, my undergrad degree was in the University of Glasgow. Oh, um, Scotland. But, yeah. yeah, and then uh, my PhD was at Liverpool, and then I uh, got a staff job there, so I work there now. Hmm. What was your doctoral research on, Dave? It was on uh, structures in fiction after postmodernism. Hmm. So there was uh, that, which is you know one of the one of the elements of it was on Wallace, but there were yeah. also other writers like Mark, Mark Danielewski was in there as well. Oh yeah, cool. Um, but this, th- so the first time I ever came to uh, to Texas uh, to the Ransom Center was actually to research some of the uh, elements of Wallace's fiction for um, uh, for the uh, for the PhD thesis actually. Hmm. Very cool. And you, so you've written. I know you're a fan of. Mark Danielewski, and I know you've written mm. about some other writers, but do you consider yourself first and foremost a American fictionist or a Wallace scholar? Or how do you view your scholarship? Um, I mean, I, I I lean very heavily towards contemporary American, or certainly kind of, you know, uh, post forty five American literature in a big mm-hmm. way. I do have interest in British uh, fiction post forty five as well, mm-hmm. and I've written on some. Uh, British writers like uh, B.S. Johnson, uh, but the, you can see also that, that these writers are all interested in um, particular things which are to do with kind of the, the form and structure of texts. I'm really interested in how um, texts kind of structure themselves and systematize themselves. I think like one of the big deals for me uh, in terms of kind of breaking through uh, in, in terms of understanding that I actually kind of wanted to do this as a career was when I first read uh, Ulysses as an undergraduate mm. and I got really kind of fascinated with the idea that you know when you look at all the kind of 
um, paratexts in Ulysses and you have that stuff like you know each chapter corresponds to a time and to a bodily organ and stuff like and I was just really kind of fascinated with the idea of the way that you know Joyce had kind of schematized this novel and I think mm. when you get to stuff like uh, like Danielewski's House of Leaves or you know B.S. Johnson's uh, The Unfortunates or, uh, or you know or indeed a number of Wallace's works you can see that kind of structuring going on and I just I'm really really interested in the kind of um, the nuts and bolts of this unusual structure that you yeah. see uh, hmm. in, in contemporary fiction. Dave, have you read The People of Paper? No. By Salvador Plasencia? No, I haven't read that. That book would probably interest you. It was originally published by McSweeney's, and then um, I think Harcourt um, did the reprinting of it. But uh, in terms of sort of like design, layout, and the kind of space that you're talking about, it does really weird, interesting things. Um, I think you'd be. I think you'd. It'd be worth checking out for you. See how it sort of factors into that conversation. Yeah, Dave. That book was recommended to me by another uh, Wallace scholar, Mark Sheridan. Mm-hmm. I think he did a paper on it at the first oh, yeah. Wallace conference. Oh, really? And so I've heard several people mention cool. that book. I haven't read it either, but I also don't know many people who have read B.S. Johnson. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I have. Uh, I've never talked to anyone that I can recall about reading his stuff, and I've only read a little bit. Mm. But I, I really like a book that he has called Aren't You Rather Young to Be Writing Your Memoirs? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great book. Which I think a- applies, you know, universally today to almost everyone you see writing a memoir. I want to just ask them, like, aren't you rather young to be writing your memoirs? Uh, I think the word rather really gets me. <laughs> Knausgaard, are you yes. rather young to be writing your memoirs? Oh, yeah, to write yeah. a six-volume memoir. My, my struggle. <laughs> <laughs> although, by, although by the way, those books I'm I'm tearing through those books. They they really are fantastic. Oh, are oh I mm-hmm. love them. Absolutely adore oh, wow. those books. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I've yet you. to check them out. So I'm, I'm just just kind of beginning volume three. I, it took me a while to get through volume two, but uh, I kind of tore through the end of it. And then volume three is just uh, mm. is phenomenal as well. I mean, I'm just I really mm. can't get enough of those books. I, I well. agree. I can, we can have a whole other show just talking about those. But um, I, what I was going to ask you is, do you think Wallace made a mention of B.S. Johnson by naming the dog in Infinite Jest S. Johnson? <laughs> you know what? I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about that. Um, yeah, whose who's dog is that? It was Incandenza's dog that got run over, right? Oh, oh, the one that's just like a uh, nub by the end of, mm. by the time Orin gets through yes, this. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. His mother's very sad about it. Yeah. I wonder who. Oh, oh, surely, actually, surely, thinking it's got to be Samuel Johnson because the dictionary, because because of Avril. Uh, mm. no, it was worth a shot. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is actually. Um, I know that uh, Stephen Byrne wrote a piece that was on uh, connections between um, uh, The Pale King and B.S. Johnson's book called uh, Christy Mallory's Own Double Entry, which is about uh, uh, kind of tax and debit and credit. So that, uh, and I, I think actually, um, I'm struggling to remember now, I think there might be a copy of that. In fact, no, I think there is a copy of Christy Mallory's Own Double Entry in Wallace's personal library, actually. Wow. So, I mean, it strikes me as the kind of thing you'd be interested in. Yeah. So he did read B.S. Johnson, then I'll go as far as to say that, that if he had a copy of the book, I assume he looked at it. I'm 90% certain he had a copy of that book. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty high certainty. I'll take that. (laughs) 
Oh, in B.S. Johnson, a lot of his books in the U.S. are out of print, so they're fairly hard to come by. And when I wanted to read some, I had to pay, you know, rather exorbitant prices mm. for getting some of them. Um, I I wonder if we could back up a bit, though, and mm. talk a little bit about a reading group that you have going. I don't know if it's mm. still going in Liverpool. It is. To reading about and they're reading Infinite Jest. Are yeah. these under, undergrad students or grad students? Or? They go all the way from uh, first year undergrad to PhD, actually. Wow. Cool. Um, cool. And that, How many people do you have involved? Well, it's, it might not surprise you to know that we started with a very substantial number <laughs> and it has ever so slightly <laughs> narrowed down. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, who, who would have thought? But um, it's, it, it's uh, now kind of settled at a pretty steady number. I think we have about a solid 12 in this group now. Um, oh, that's good. Who, cool. and, uh, you know, I imagine are pretty much now in it to the end. We're about halfway through the book. Um, and they, yeah. they've got a bit of reading to do over Easter and then we're going to uh, kind of catch up uh, after Easter. Mm. Um, and it's been a great experience, actually. I wanted, one of the reasons I, I wanted to make it kind of open to all all levels of, of scholarship um, is because I, mm. I really like the idea that there can be a group that kind of speaks across those, uh, those stratifications so that, you know, someone who's doing a PhD will be able to talk to someone who's a first-year undergraduate because we have this kind of common thing that we we talk about and you don't really have to worry about those kind of psychological stratifications that you get in uh in, in you know in the institution and in fact it seems to have worked really well in my experience mm. that's cool so with this reading group can i ask about do you read a section and then just discuss it or is there other assignments and sort of teaching pedagogy that goes along with the instruction around like how to read the book well, mm. well, actually, uh, it's kind of outside of cr the curriculum. It's a voluntary thing. So uh, basically, mm. they, you know, we, we kind of meet at, at, at five o'clock, which is kind of after classes are finished, and then we kind of have this discussion. So there's there's the, the only kind of uh, prerequisite is that, you know, we set a, a, a number of pages. Uh, normally, we meet every two weeks, and normally it's about kind of... I don't know, kind of 100, 150 pages every fortnight. And um, and then really we'll just discuss cool. those. We usually start by discussing those pages and then we kind of continue to uh, discuss on kind of other stuff that is, uh, that is kind of springing mm -hmm. out of that. And some of them who are in my uh, Modern American Fiction class in, in the final year uh, are also reading Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, which is part of that uh, syllabus. Mm -hmm. So sometimes some of that is kind of creeping into the discussion as well. Uh, and it's just great. It's great to see because cool. I mean, most of them just hadn't uh, really encountered Wallace before, and you can see, you know, um, you can see people really kind of picking it up. And um, I know there's uh, there's one student who says she's kind of basically got the entire structure of Infinite Jest kind of mapped out on her wall now. Uh, it's getting steadily more <laughs> elaborate with each uh, with each class, which is great. Like like a forensic investigator's kind of map yeah, board, yeah this you know? is what i imagine she said there's you know there's many spider diagrams kind of uh spread around yeah. so it's it's great to see kind of people are really string and thumbtacks yeah. <laughs> but i also um if if you don't mind i i asked um i asked the group whether if there were any questions that they could kind of 
put to us in terms of the kind of discussion points uh, about Wallace's yeah, work. Course, yeah, course, um, yeah. And so I have uh, I have a couple here that I thought were that were kind of really interesting. Um, and and one was kind of specifically about Infinite Jest, and it was um, one of the members of the group, uh, Scott, has asked, um, uh, "Does Wallace make the reading experience of Infinite Jest reflect the theme of rehabilitation in the novel?" So kind of uh, the the idea is that when you as you continue to read the novel if you persevere it gets easier and easier i just wondered what your what your thoughts were about about that hmm. Hmm. My, my my instinct is to say no <laughs> <laughs> i think it still takes a lot of effort and attention <laughs> and you can relapse very easily and put it down even 700 pages into it but hmm. what's yeah. your what's your instinct dave my instinct is is the opposite that i do think that it that it is pretty obtuse and unforgiving, you know, sort of in the first quarter. Um, and then, and I wrote about this for Infinite Winter in my sort of intro post that there's kind of a relenting that happens where you hit a, you hit a specific point and I can give a page number for this, but I don't want to spoil anything. Um, but there's kind of this turning point where you're like, Oh, okay. And the light goes on and you're able to kind of backtrack and then sort of put some pieces together, uh, in a way that was kind of challenging before that moment. So I think that from sort of the quarterway point on, you're starting to get pieces from Wallace that, um, are starting to, to be visibly, uh, more cohesive with what you've already seen. So you're seeing Hal recurring, you're seeing Gately recurring, lots of other characters. Um, whereas the first like 100 or 150 pages, you're just getting all this random stuff that seems really, you know, uh, non-cohesive and unrelated. And you're just like, how do these all fit together? So I do think that as you get further in the book, it, there is a there is an ease that comes and it starts to kind of an engine sort of kicks in and it propels itself in a way but i also agree with you matt that i know people who've abandoned at like 600 800 pages which to me is so sad <laughs> <laughs> like oh you've made it so far up the mountain and then you know but that, but that happens could... all the time in recovery yeah. where you know yeah, it's yeah, totally. very rare that you get someone in recovery who sticks mm-hmm. with it and never has a relapse and never totally and never abandons yeah. it so i i mean when i when i first read the book and this is going back a ways now right like 19 20 years ago <laughs> but when i first read the book i remember loving it and then i got to a point in like 300 pages in where sort of life intervened and i had to put it down for a while mm-hmm. and it it wasn't that it was a slog it was it's still a lot to remember your first time around to know all of these yeah. points and characters and I talked to several other people who had the opposite experience where you put it down 100 pages, but you know you liked it and you want to go back to it. And I think that's Mm. one thing with addiction is that you have this mentality of like, you know, this is bad for you, but yet you still can't stick with like a clean program. Mm. So I... I do. I think there's something to that. I think it's a good question. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And I think Wallace was only sort of aware of this. You know, now that I've read the book multiple times, mm. and Dave, you can talk more about this. Dave Herring can talk a lot about sort of the structure of Infinite Jest. It didn't have the original opening for a long time. Mm. So, I mean, now that you know, like, how it was originally structured, you know, does that change your perception of how the book is sort of digested or perceived? Right. Yeah. Um, I su- I mean, I suppose that there's. I mean, the 
the thing about the book is I think he from from my experience of what I've seen he always had a kind of general sense of where the narrative was going um but there are certainly bits and pieces of that book that come in much later so yeah like you say that the this the year of glad opening sequence uh doesn't come in for quite a while um that is quite a late edition a lot of orin's material is late very late actually um in my experience uh, the hmm. orin's final scene in the novel uh, is uh, as far as I could make it out, only appears very, very late. I mean, nearly uh, uh, almost kind of copy edit stage. Not, I mean, not quite that late, but it's a very, very late edition. Um, and it does seem that, it seemed to me that Oren was a character that got kind of polished very late. Uh, he was in there, but he was never quite uh, as, uh, quite as immediately there as the others. And I think there's... Um, Mm. Also interesting, like a, a number of the cuts, the larger cut areas of that book are to do with Orin. So the the first scene of Orin uh, waking up is that scene is really much, much mm-hmm. longer in the original uh, pre-cut stuff. There's a lot more of that. There's a good kind of six or seven more pages of, of his nightmare and his kind of experiences. And then mm, latterly, there's uh, the, the, the sequence with the, the Marlon Bain avril orin stuff that you get kind of later with the letter uh that is um a lot longer i mean that is kind of seriously longer so i think there's uh th- there's hmm. a lot of stuff around orin that doesn't kind of calcify until quite until quite late and that's i suppose that's a way of saying that it's it's weird because you i think all the assumptions that i had before i went and before i saw all those materials in the ransom center was that i assumed that he kind of laid everything out full like so kind of every detail was all there and every detail was kind of full and then he kind of absented information so he kind of you know he would have everything because this is the question that i think a lot of people have when they go to the archive it's i'm going to look at the um the manuscripts of infinite jest and uh, i'm going to try and find that material that isn't in it so the material about you know what happens before the year of glad and then do we get to see you know don gately and and mm-hmm. Hal together and stuff like that. and um in fact that that stuff was certainly in terms of the material that's in there uh, that i have seen that material doesn't exist and i'm not aware that that material ever did exist so he was clearly always working on it with the understanding that there was certain material that would not be there and that the readers had to infer was there or that there were a multiple uh, there were kind of multiple opportunities to kind of decide what was ha- what was happening there and so there are certainly late editions like the year of glad like the um like some of the orin material but a lot of the earlier material um is is there from very very early so that professional conversationalist scene um i mean it, it that could mm-hmm. it's possible that that could be there as early as the mid 80s one of them not the mid 80s but the late 80s um uh whether um whether i'm right or not on that i'm not sure i mean the the thing the date on that original version of the conversation scene says 1986 now i don't know whether that is that means the scene is taking place in 1986 in that version or whether it was actually written in 1986 but that is a very very early piece and maybe the conversationalist um is one of the very very first things ever that he writes um about that book Hmm. and that was the intro for a long time right that was the introduction to the right, book yeah. in the first yeah, section absolutely and then the, the, there was going to be originally an immediate cut 
to uh, um, the sequence with James Incandenza trying to te- uh, being taught tennis by his father in 1960. So it was, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was, it was going yeah. to kind of segue immediately between the two father and son conversations, and there was a much longer bit of that where mm-hmm. um, the older uh, James Incandenza's father uh, goes takes him to the shed and finds Black Widows and sets Black Widows on fire. All that material is there in the Ransom Center, um, but I think a lot of the earlier stuff was cut. Um, on request of Michael Peach, who's, I've seen some of the letters, and, and he just says, "Look, there's too. It's too much at the beginning. You're asking too much. Uh, you know, it's 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 already <laughs> complex, and this is just this is just too much at the beginning. I think um, it's too misanthropic. It's. I think it's. In a way. It, there, there's also this weird scene. I remember in a couple drafts, there's a scene right near the beginning of that was cut. That is a scene of. Avril in Condenza in the car with a lover on the way to an airport hotel mm. to have an affair. Do you remember this scene? Yeah, the, you know? yeah this the, uh, that actually you've mm. you've just joined two uh, previously non-joined pieces of information in, together in my head there um, because mm. there is this weird. Um, Actually, that's clarified something that's been bothering me for about five years. So, uh, thanks, mm. Matt. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a, there's, no, a, there's, no a, there's a handwritten no piece of writing in uh, in the Ransom Center in the draft, which is about two people going to an airport. Um, and I hadn't put two and two together and thought that that was Avril, because there is a separate thing, which is about her traveling with a lover in the car. And actually, there's a very early draft that was written in pencil, I think, uh, which is very unusual. Uh, very unusual indeed um uh you d- you don't you don't get that much written in pencil um in those drafts and uh mm. yeah that is about two t- two lovers going to the airport and i'd not actually quite put those two things together um well and when i read that first scene it was in I might be wrong. I'll have to check online, but I think that it's in the draft that he sent to stephen moore in nineteen ninety four and in that draft what I was reminded of when I read that was that it seemed to me like he repurposed that scene later for the short story adult world and that in adult world it had the same feel to me as some of the stuff that's in adult world about people on their way to a hotel and being in a cheesy motel to have an affair and and in that section that was in an early draft of Infinite Jest, I mean, it's right up at the front, maybe the second or mm. third section. And, you know, we sort of think of this canonical structure that's there now where you've got it opening year of glad, house problem. So, yo, then, man, what's your story? <laughs> and then it goes right into yeah. Erdity, right? Yeah. And then you've got this long Erdity thing. And then it's like, by if you read all of that, you're in the book. You know, you're committed. <laughs> <laughs> There's no getting out now. Um Although addicts will backslide, but I, I, you know, I wonder because you've read so many of these different versions of it, does that inform it now? Like when you go with these students who are encountering the book for the first time, you know, do you bring that up or do you just sort of hold back and let them experience it as it's published? I, I have to be quite careful because, um, I'm, I tried to kind of cast my mind back to the first time I read it and the kind of the level of complexity that's there is already so much uh that when i if i'm 
I'm kind of aware that I'm going to start dropping in kind of pieces of information about stuff that isn't there because so ma- so much of the time people mm. are trying to kind of form connections between stuff that they're trying to remember from earlier in the book. So I'm trying not to kind of mm-hmm. um, imp- complicate it too much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying trying not to kind of overcomplicate it. Although you know we have kind of had uh, discussions about um, you know Wallace scholarship and what people write about Wallace because uh, obviously a number of them who are doing um, brief interviews as a as a syllabus book are. Um, potentially going to be writing on Wallace and they're kind of interested to know the different ways that people have kind of uh, approached the fiction. So we probably mm-hmm. talk a little bit more about uh, people who've written on Wallace and Wallace criticism and Wallace scholarship and and also I kind of uh, share stories about talking about reading the books um, with other people as well. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's not so much... Um, giving them a huge amount more information because I'm just aware that, you know, Infinite Jest is kind of more information than uh, the brain can deal with most of the time. Anyway. <laughs> Any one mortal can hope to endure. <laughs> but can you tell that some of them, like, are really, really, really into it and this is going to be, like, their favorite book for life <laughs> or they're just, like, in general interested in other things? <laughs> I, th- I can definitely I can definitely <laughs> see that the um, there are, there are people who have really kind of taken to it uh, and have really kind of uh, taken to the kind of the 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 journey and and the adventure of it and I think also I've I've never read the book in a reading group before so you know the first time I read Mm. it I read it alone uh, and, it, yeah. and really at that point I was kind of I didn't know anyone else who read it I didn't really have anyone to discuss it with and I kind of remember kind of coming, yeah me too yeah okay so you, you'll remember that experience of kind of coming out and going I have an awful lot that I want to say but I don't have anyone to yeah, say it yeah. to you know? so the, I, some questions yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean I think that's a common experience with a mm. lot of people who read the book and then they go online to look for someone yeah. else to talk to mm-hmm. and you know in my experience they either end up on Twitter or Facebook groups or they end up on sometimes on our listserv and you know we it's, it hasn't happened very recently but we used to get you know half a dozen people uh, in the course of a year who would write in and say I have a question about Infinite Jets I just finished oh, yeah. it you know what, what's going on in this part and they're just desperate mm. to ask someone else who's read the <laughs> yeah. book you know? yeah I mean that was that was um, my experience like I joined the list of um, because I wanted to kind of speak with people about the book, and I, this was kind of pre, really pre f- Facebook, pre Twitter, or certainly you know pre that kind of mobilisation of social media, Wallace Wallace mm-hmm. stuff on social media, um, uh, in a, in a big way. So that was that was the group really, and it, and yeah, it was it was you know it, it was a very active group, and there's st- I mean it's still active, you know, there's still a lot of people who who are on it. Yeah. So, Dave, you guys are just about at the same places uh, as Infinite Winter in terms of being about halfway through the book. Is there any overlap that people in your reading group are checking things on Infinite Winter and bringing that to the conversation at all? Well, there's. Um, uh, I, w- I was speaking to. Um, it's Mark Flanagan, isn't it, who organizes Infinite Winter? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was spe- I, I, well, I'd, I, I've emailed with Mark, and in fact, he, um, um, he was. Uh, kind of invited people to 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 join the they have a reddit group that that talks about it yeah. so um 
I, I'm, I'm sure that the, that some of this reading group are also kind of getting involved, and I've been I've been uh, kind of posting links to Infinite Winter at the same time and saying this is not exactly not cool. exactly timed yeah. with what we're doing, but you want to look at this blog, you want to look mm-hmm. at the um, you know the kind of people uh, the kind of real time experience of people reading it together as well. So it's it's not a direct mm-hmm. um, it's not an exact match in terms of the read. It's it's a kind of pleasant overlap, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's great. I mean, that's another thing that whenever, you know, the book Mm. came out 20 years ago and someone who picked it up and read it and they went online and there was not something like Infinite Summer or Infinite Winter. And in fact, there was not a published Mm. reader's guide to the book Mm. until 2001. And so, I mean, there's there's a lot more resources now for readers, one, to find each other and to talk about the book and to really even like buy fan art about the book. (laughs) Then, you know, it's- Coffee mugs. Well, it sort of felt more like a cult classic back then because you're really in this small group and really no one that you know in real life is talking about it. So I think it's a huge step forward to have these groups of like real life people that you know have resources they can go and learn more about the book mm. yeah definitely and, and i think um i think it has been facilitated in a big way with with social media and i think also that um certainly from an, an academic perspective there's been an, an enormous amount of academic writing come out of the last um kind of seven or eight years in particular um yeah it, totally. it really kind of <laughs> is that the is that the world weary voice of someone who has a lot more of this stuff to read <laughs> a, a, in, a, in a way like I'm, I'm happy that's happening but at the same time as someone who's writing a thesis right now it's like well I got so much stuff that I need to read you know in terms of just like being aware of the mm. of the scholarly landscape that it's that it's pretty daunting I mean, I, right? I've had a couple of comments from from undergrads or postgrads who are writing on Wallace and a couple of times I've, I've mm-hmm. heard them say things like well you know that I, I, I need this I'm, I'm looking at the scholarship and there's just so much of it and I just remember thinking wow you know because I, I had like a <laughs> yeah. finite list of everything that had basically everything that had been written on Wallace and it basically all fitted on uh, you know a single side of paper at one point so uh, you know the idea yeah. of the kind of massive explosion of criticism that's come in the last um, particularly the last five years or so where we had you know we, we, we had yeah, that we've had yeah. a, a big explosion of edited collections and now actually what we're beginning to see is that next wave of uh, f- book length works the next wave of monographs as well so we've got um uh, you know claire claire hayes brady's book re- really excellent book came out yeah. uh, in february um and then uh yeah mine's out in, in september but then we also have uh lucas thompson's is coming out in uh, i think it's december as well yeah really excited about that you know there's there's a a large number Give of books um kind of on the horizon and uh jeff sievers do you mm, know jeff yes, sievers yes. He, he, he has a book coming out in i think october as well from columbia university press so there's you know there was a time where you could keep up with this stuff <laughs> yeah, totally. and it, it would be a big deal to have one of these monographs published mm. in a calendar year yeah. and and now that you know in one calendar year we're talking four or five or six <laughs> you know major works on wallace it's just it's too much for one person anymore yeah it's it's insane for sure i mean this is um this is this is where it's nice to be able to say, well, it's it's kind of my job to read them. So you know, I uh, I'm able I'm able to say, well, yeah. this is my job, and I have to sit and take this time and uh, and read them now. You know, so this is that's a, it's a perk of the job, definitely. Yeah. 
That's funny. Wasn't didn't Adam Kelly have a site that was listing all of the you know scholarly works on Wallace? Um, Does that still is he still up on that, or is that kind of now at a point where it's just too hard to well, keep track? I, I've Not yeah, sure. he had an article. I think on it, it's it's a death of the author and the birth of a discipline, which is uh, two thousand and nine. Yes, right. I think, or, or possibly two thousand and ten. That was in the Journal mm-hmm. of Irish Studies. 10 yeah mm. 2010 yeah. right oh yeah it was a paper and it's yeah. fascinating cool. to see actually since since adam wrote that paper um the the amount that has happened basically because you know he that was a kind of capturing of that particular moment and what was happening in wallace's criticism at wallace criticism mm-hmm. at that time and now there's been so much since um it's extraordinary you mm-hmm. know the, the, it's it's really really snowballing Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any other questions from your reading? Yes, uh, I have another question, um, and this is uh, and this is an interesting one actually. It's a slightly broader question about Wallace's work in in particular. Uh, this is from uh, from Gail, and she says, um, uh, "No, that's the wrong one. Hang on." Uh, she says, "Having just finished brief interviews, I'm wondering about um, whether the search for the more positive side of human nature." let alone any joy is completely futile in, in Wallace's <laughs> fiction um, and, and I'm, I'm very aware because uh, uh, Gail has said a number of times in the group that she you know she, she's reading Infinite Jest and she finds so much of it so kind of harrowing and difficult it is I think when you've read it a few times you you can sometimes become yeah. a bit immune to it but the, particularly you know the stuff with the um, the recovery groups is really really tough um, tough stuff and yeah I mean yeah. What, what do you think you know the positive side of human nature and joy joy in Wallace's <laughs> fiction <laughs> Dave do you remember that moment at the Paris conference when one of the presenters was talking about brief interviews and saying that like the characters in it were so unbelievable and otherworldly and then someone from the audience was like well what do you mean like they're totally realistic and there was kind of a tension like a tense moment i don't want to name names but it was like a pretty it's pretty extreme moment at that conference and this kind of reminds me of that it's like you know does that book accurately portray human nature and i think most people would say that it does but like you just get this collection of all of them in one place and it's so concentrated and there's so much like abjection Mm. in one place that it feels like unbelievable maybe in a way um but yeah i mean wallace definitely is is no like cockeyed Mm. optimist right he's definitely a realist about you know what humans are capable of um sort of in both ways but i think i find so much of his writing so hilarious that he is able to to capture the mirth of the human experience as well as uh sort of the the low points um what do you think matt Uh, well i think a couple things one there's a line for you know i've been reading infinite chess this time around with infinite winter in conjunction with With the big book of aa yeah and there's a there's a line in the big book of AA where towards the end they say, you know, if you go to enough of these meetings, you're going to hear really depressing stories like every day, like mm-hmm. every time you're going to hear someone who mm-hmm. has ruined their life mm-hmm. and they have nothing going for them and their last ditch effort is to come to this meeting. Mm-hmm. And that can be pretty depressing if you go every week or every day and you just listen to these boring <laughs> stories. But there's a line in the book that says, it's a famous line that says, we are not a Mm. glum lot. Mm. Despite all of this, we actually have something to live for. And that if we had nothing to live for, we would be miserable all the time. But 
we are actually pursuing happiness. Believe huh. it or not, this is a step on the road to pursuing happiness. And uh, AA, you know, it's famous for rock bottom stories. Mm. Yeah. You hit rock bottom, yeah. and then the only place in. to go is up. Yeah, yeah the yeah. only place to go is up from the bottom. So I think... You know, there's also a famous John Updike line where he says, you know, when has happiness ever been the subject of fiction? <laughs> yeah. The but, pursuit of it is just that, a pursuit. Right. And in sort of death, tra- he says death and its adjutants tax every transaction. In the back of your mind, there's always this thing. Even when you're having a great time, mm-hmm. you know, this to me very much fits walls. Yeah. When you're having a blast... You're having a good time. You're aware that it's going to end. You know that you're going to die one day. You know you're going to die. You can't enjoy this forever. (laughs) This is funny. Uh, When I teach English 11, so high school English, and a few years ago, I sort of prefaced the course with some of Wallace's comments from the Larry McCaffrey interview Mm -hmm. about what fiction does, you know, like his idea of um, good fiction being 49% pleasure, 51% pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And then later in the, and we kind of made reference to that throughout the course, and it's kind of a good touch stone for students that age to kind of refer back to as they're processing different texts. Um, But one of the students made a comment to me after we read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and they were like, okay, yeah, Mr. Laird, but like everything that we're reading is like 99% pain and 1% pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) And like, so what's the deal with that ratio? Like, can you give us more stuff that's like optimistic or happy? (laughs) So, yeah, I mean... That goes to what you're saying, Matt, that when has fiction ever just dealt with a a totally gleeful side of humanity? No, I mean, storytelling relies on some kind of a conflict to move the story along. Yeah. I I mean, this idea that we should have a happy ending or, you know, Wallace really rejects that, I think. He never does. (laughs) He struggles with that throughout his whole career. And, you know, Franzen sort of knocked him for this after his death. And Franzen published an essay called uh, Farther Away. And he says, you know, Wallace never really portrayed happy, loving couples. Hmm. And there was always Always dysfunction. Yeah, always this dysfunction. And it's like he really just couldn't love or something. And I just think that's total BS. (laughs) And I think that, you know, for a writer uh, who's producing art, what is their goal? And is your goal to really connect with readers? Mm Mm-hmm. If so, Wallace succeeded fantastically well. Yeah. So, I, you know, there, despite all appearances, I don't think that AA and the depressing parts of Wallace's fiction is truly a glum lot. I think that they are a group of characters in search of happiness. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my take. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot of re- redemption in Wallace's work, too. I, th- I think if you look at some of the books... That Wallace recommended, um, uh, you would, would kind of continue to recommend it, like uh, Blood Meridian and uh, Steps by uh, Jerzy Krasinski. And you, you think, actually, you know, these books make Wallace look like a, a laugh riot, actually. You know, th- <laughs> these, are, these, are not, these are not happy books <laughs> totally. uh, in, in any sense. But I also, yeah. I also think that um, I think that he, he, he can be under, Wallace can be underrated as a comic writer as well. I think, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the mm. sequence, uh, uh, either of the major sequences with uh, Leonard Stesek in The Pale King, the young Leonard Stesek, are really, like, hysterically funny writing. Like, I mean, I really, I really do um, 
I, I always find myself laughing when I read them. Uh, very, very funny, I think. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's sort of the way Infinite Jest was marketed too. Was as partly as like a comic mm. novel, and and a lot of people, yeah. early reviewers, they only really commented on the humor, you know, of like Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's just funny. The Statue of Liberty wearing one. Yeah, yeah and that and that was their take on the book. And it's like, wow, I'm not really sure you read the whole thing, <laughs> but, but yeah, there is a lot of humor in it. You know, it is. That's got the word jest in the title. So. Yeah. Maybe it is funny. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I do find him funny. And I mean, he has this sort of juvenile sense of humor early on, especially with Broom mm. of the System, where yeah. there's just a lot of gags and pranks and <laughs> sort of Pinchonian you yeah. know, tricks. But he clearly matures and is, gets a lot more interested in, you know, what I think is real adult life. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is like the moments of joy are pretty few and far between. (laughs) You know, like Uh, as a parent, you know, uh. I mean, just, just as a working adult day in and day out, it's really a struggle to stay positive. Right. I mean, where do you think that question sort of originates, Dave? Is that more just about like someone searching for answers in the book or being sort of turned off by the negativity of it? where do I think that the uh, that original question comes from yeah I, I think it's um, I, th- I, I think it was just kind of in response to the um, particularly like kind of infinite maybe kind of reading infinite jest uh, uh, in, in tandem with with brief interviews and there is, I think particularly at the stage we're at in the group with infinite jest it is still quite a kind of catalog of horrors you know and I think that that kind of earlier earlier <laughs> moment of those uh, of those um of the uh, the uh, recovery groups and also of um, you know the kind of general bad stuff like poor Tony having a seizure and stuff. I mean these are really kind of palpably shocking and kind of unpleasant sequences. And then also the the the, the business by in in Copley Square with a C getting dosed with Drano and his eyeball popping out of his head. You know and it's it, it's 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 kind yeah, of yeah. easy to forget. And in fact, kind of going over it, kind of reading it again, I had forgotten just what a gruesome book. Mm-hmm. It is actually um yeah it is ghastly i you know i wonder how much of that reflects where wallace was mentally when he was writing and really what he was trying to achieve artistically in terms of the book being about you know sort of a unique american sadness of the times mm. and uh, you know i think to me, that wasn't something. Maybe I I was more in sync with that emotionally at the time, but like, I, it just doesn't feel to me like completely as off putting. Like you said, because I had read some other things that were even more bleak mm. and horrific. Right. Yeah, Dave. I wonder what your take is as like a non you know you uh, North American continental about the stuff about American life. Wallace talks a lot about like this book is very American and like a lot of his interview stuff is about that particularly. So for someone who's in the UK, what do you what do you make of that? How do you respond or relate to it as you read? Is it something that resonates with you culturally? Um, or? I mean, I think that there are, there are things in there that, I mean, I think, okay. So if, you know, if these novels were kind of so us centric in terms of their points of reference that, um, mm-hmm. uh, that they were kind of incomprehensible, not incomprehensible, but, you know, kind of, uh, not really translatable. Then I, 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 yeah. I don't think I could have 
made that connection with those novels in the first place. So I think there's, there's, um, yeah. I mean, I think potentially there's an element where, to that kind of uh, amplification of late twentieth century capitalism that you get in that slightly kind of futuristic narrative in Infinite Jest, which speaks to you know any. Mm-hmm. Um, what Wallace called Western industrial society, you know, Western Western industrial country that is experiencing, you know, late capitalism, that is experiencing that kind of cyclical, that endlessly um, kind of generating kind of capitalism. And I think so. I think there are, the effect that is going to be had on the psyche of any individual in those, in those countries. I mean, I think, I think um, in America um, it's, it has accelerated faster uh, than it has done, say, in the UK. But that's not to say that, you know, that the, the UK is in any sense kind of immune from that kind of sadness or that kind of... Um, th- th- I think sometimes, you know, mm. the UK might like to think that kind of culturally that it isn't, but I think it's, you know, it's 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 still very much kind of embedded within that, uh, within a lot of those same reference points. Um, and while I think in, in, in yeah. Wallace's work he is... A lot of the time, very specifically talking about America. This is another reason I'm interested in um, uh, in Lucas's book is because you know he's trying to frame Wallace against world literature, from what I understand. And I think um, it, you know it's 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 interesting because I, I do, do I do think about Wallace as, as a primarily American author um, for all the kind of universality of his of, of the sentiment and the emotion. I I do think of him as being very very particularly. Uh, caught up with with American matters. There's nothing. Uh, I mean, I'm gonna. It's gonna be one of those sweeping statements that I'm immediately proved wrong on here. But there's um, there's 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 nothing. <laughs> he never set anything outside America, right? Is that right? Apart from Canada. Um. Nothing. No. Comes can- to obviously, mind so the, the Canadian stuff. Apart yeah, from the Canadian stuff, the Infinite Jest. <laughs> well, what about the story? Another pioneer. Oh yeah. Um, that's sort of like it's a it's a myth in a way or a folk tale, but it's it's unique because it's overheard. It's got a framing structure where it's overheard on a plane on the way mm. to South America, I think. Mm. But that that that's just you know, like you say, if you put out a bold statement like that, someone's going to try to find an exception <laughs> to the rule. Um, but but I think for the most part, you're right. Let's say ninety nine percent of his work is really set in. I, I think a lot of yeah, it is just yeah. really set in the Midwest. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. So much of it is set in the Midwest, but, you know, dealing with Boston and Amherst and Arizona uh, and Illinois, I mean, that's got to mm. be like 80% of his work is in those <laughs> places. Yeah. I mean, the cruise ship is right, and maybe international waters. We're flexing at straws here, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> But I think that's an interesting point because I I wonder a lot about why his work has done so well in say, Italy, like yeah. Italy. Mm-hmm. and Italy sort of has a similar situation with its government that is often falling apart or is often non-functional and the economy is just up and down, up and down and you get this sort of I don't know, sadness or this existential angst towards, well, you know, what does, what are we sort of doing here? What are we living? Mm. Like, what are we living for? What are we, you know, wh- how should a person live? And, and your head of, your head that, of state in Italy, well, was a, a, t- a TV mogul as well. I mean, he's kind of right, beyond yeah. anything that Wallace could cook up almost, you know. Uh, no, he was a Donald Trump character. I mean, yeah, he yeah. was a Donald Trump character. And I, I think, 
Wallace saw that as a uniquely American thing, but I think it translated very well to Western Europe mm-hmm. and, you know, is now in places like Brazil that also have, you know, strange, large economies and faltering governments and things like that. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how that book in particular translates, but it seems to do, you know, phenomenally well at a sentence level. Yeah. In translation, mm-hmm. as opposed to being, at, you know, largely thematic. Like you're not going to get the themes if you don't just plow through paragraph after paragraph of the writing. And I think that's, you know, the unique blend that sort of Wallace was able to achieve. And every writer sort of wants to achieve, uh, you know, connect to people on a very personal level, but then also make this like larger social statement or, you know, have some importance mm-hmm. at that level. So, I mean, that that's a great question. Going back to the original question, which was sort of about uh, positivity and negativity <laughs> and this sort of st- almost stereotypical characters that are in brief interviews. But, uh, you know, for me, I, I think there's a good balance, actually, between sort of pursuit of happiness and actually achieving it. Because uh, achieving it is, to me, somewhat mm. hollow. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm always aware. Always that fleeting. It's, yeah, it's yeah. always fleeting. And yeah. I'm always aware that, you know, you've it's going to end. And Wallace being super self-conscious, I'm sure that played a part in his as well. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you have another question, I want to hit that. And then I have another question for you about your book before yeah. we, before we the, go. The, those are the, no, those are the questions I have. So, uh, yeah, we can move. We can move along. Awesome. Thanks to your reading group for those. Those are yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah no, and we want to give a, a shout out to your reading group and say mm. thanks for following along and feel free to email us or hit us on mm. Twitter with any other conversation. We'd love to just talk to, you know, especially people who are reading the book for the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah totally. Definitely. One of my uh, really sort of like distinct memories of Infinite Jest is that the book that I read after Infinite Jest felt really lackluster. And it was a pretty good book. Like, it was Naked by David Sedaris. Mm. Um, and, you know, it has lots of critical acclaim. It's funny. But I remember just reading that book right after and being like, this just, in comparison to Infinite Jest, is, you know, if I read it any other time, I'm sure I would just be loving it. But compared to the experience I just had, I don't know. It just feels a bit, falls a bit flat. Do you guys remember what book you read after Infinite Jest and how you felt about it? Oh, Jesus. I mean, you're going back. For me, I read the book in like 19... So this is like 10 years ago for me. Uh, this is yeah. like 20 years for me. And right, yeah. I, I don't recall. I mean, I think I probably read another Wallace book. After. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I like hopped on that train really fast after two. I think the book, believe it or not, I think the book that I read after Infinite Jest was The Recognitions. Um, which, wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not you know not content with punishing myself with uh, with 1100 pages <laughs> i decided to read uh, i decided to read the recognitions after although i was kind of i was on a um i was on a, a kind of a, a long stretch of not having to I, I didn't have to work so i was basically working through all of these massive books um that i'd been meaning to read for a very long time uh mm. so i mean i i wouldn't recommend reading the recognitions immediately after infinite jest um <laughs> in, a, in any circumstance give yourself a light break yeah i mean the, yeah inf- infinite jest was like you know reading a newspaper uh, compared to reading the recognitions, so um, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, and I, I lack I lack the stamina nowadays to do to you know to kind of light one thousand page book off the next like a like a chain smoker, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, 
Speaking of thousand page books, Dave, have you read The Instructions by Adam Levin? No, it sits on my shelf glowering at me and, I, and one day I will read it. Oh man, it's so good. It's so good. You, I, I recommend it so highly. No, I, I have the... I've met like one, one or two other people who have read it and it's been a fun conversation. A friend of mine... Liz just said she's going to start reading that book and I haven't read it yet either and I was like I know a couple of other people have read it and I was like "Ah, I I really got to get to it but I also have like (laughs) 30 books on my nightstand that I need to finish totally it's it's way easier than Infinite Jest like it doesn't have the same kind of density but um, it's very immersive and and hilarious as well I'm also working through um, the new Mark Danielewski 27 volume uh, oh, yeah. novel called The Familiar so that's that's kind of that, interspersing that and uh, Knausgaard is kind of now basically the mm. equivalent of a full time job uh, so uh, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm in this now for uh, you know for, for who knows how long until they both finish basically mm-hmm. so I'm waiting on the new yeah. Knausgaard to be published in the US volume 5 mm. in April and I have a tradition sort of the past couple years or a year and a half, two years, I've been reading it every Saturday and Sunday morning. And now that I don't have those books, I'm, you know, I'm waiting on the next one. I'm really desperate to get a hold of, like, I sort of don't feel like I'm having any fun in the weekends now because of that, but I don't have you're that like book. You're like those Game of Thrones readers who are waiting for like the seventh book to come out and they're just like tweaking, yeah. you know? And now the show's like surpassing the books and people are freaking out. And I'll be really sad when that that project is done. Mm. But, um, Mm. you know, my question for you about the book. So I sort of knew you were working on this book for a while. Mm. And when when it was announced by Bloomsbury, they posted a table of contents and there was only four chapters to the book. And I was like, wow, this must be like really substantive, like detailed chapters. Mm. And... One of them, I want to kind of ask you a little bit about each of them because it seems like Mm. one of them is about ghosts um, and one of them is about regionalism Mm. or, you know, what I think is like the Midwest. Maybe I'm wrong about that. You set me straight. Uh, Another one is about mirrors, which I heard you talk about a little bit last year, I think, with Las Las Meninas. Yeah, yeah. And then the... Then the last one is about uh, the Pale King, which sort of interests me most about the construction of the Pale King. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is, is one, is that right? And, you know, if two, <laughs> how are they sort of spread across the book or tied together? Yeah, no, I mean, that that, that is basically right. Yeah, I mean, um, the, 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 I mean, the thing that underpins the book really is that, um, well, there were, there were a number of motivations. One, I think, you know, that I wanted there to be uh, a kind of a comprehensive analysis of the structures of his writing across his fiction, across all of his fiction. Um, and uh, I like the idea of a kind of dual um, analysis, which took into account the published fiction and also the processes of writing the fiction as reflected in his papers in the archive. So there's this kind of um, dialogue between what he's writing in, in his papers in the archive and then the actual published um, uh, the published stories themselves, the published fiction itself, which obviously complicates that relationship complicates massively when the Pale King comes out because it is it's an assembly uh, that was put together uh, extremely mm-hmm. masterfully by Michael Peach. I mean, looking at those papers, I just you know it's almost impossible to believe that that Peach got something so you know so clear out of them. <laughs> um, but in terms of thinking about. Um, about the, the the chapters themselves. I mean, the, so this idea of of, of 
of a dialogue is really what underpins the entire book is this is that I, I I really read Wallace's fiction so much as a kind of conflict between um, the monologue and the dialogue and the monologic and the dialogic um, you know I, I hmm. see Wallace's fiction as wanting to be dialogic wanting to be in conversation wanting to be about conversation wanting to be a conversation um, but that the, hmm. that is always he is always hyper aware of the problem of the monologue and and that itself is very very tied up in the extent to which he is present or not present in his books and you know anyone anyone who's read his books will know that he has this kind of slightly vexed relationship it's kind of this kind of slight kind of hide and seek relationship with his own presence in his books and he's also you know responding very strongly to this idea of you know authorial effacements you know of, of post-structuralism of the death mm-hmm. of the author um which is you know a, yeah. a strong strong element of his education in the 1980s you know this is like real theory yeah. high you know high yeah, watermark yeah. theory yeah absolutely in 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 american yeah. academies in the 1980s and so what i wanted to do was to read and this is what i do in the book i read that that conflict between the monologic and the, and the dialogic at the level of the subject of his text and the construction of his fiction but also at the level of composition so these things kind of weave weave into one another and so the, the question the, the chapter about ghosts a uh, ghostliness which is the first chapter um and which i think you know that uh, i'm i'm now so interested in ghostliness in literature i'm probably going to go on and write something about that next i think but um because it's just once you open that box you know there's there's so much going on there um but i think yeah. this is your conference paper in paris right yes yeah that the based on that yeah, yeah. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the conference paper in paris was a kind of early version of a little bit of of that chapter yeah. and basically cool. yeah i'm 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 talking in that chapter a lot about the idea of possession, uh, of voices being possessed by other people, of your voice being possessed by someone else's voice, and then the the uh, the, the, the that sudden kind of increase in ghostly figures or ghosts in the fiction, which seem to me to be performing uh, that a kind of a dramatization of that fear about who is speaking and who is speaking for that person. Mm. Uh, and in fact, you know, when you go through the fiction, you just get you know the the, the prevalence of ghosts just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. It kind of moves from being about, you know, not being able to find your own voice to being actually literally possessed uh, by a ghost or to have a kind of hmm. a li- literally have a conversation with a ghost in the text itself. Um, and so that that's the first chapter. So I'm, it, so I'm, I'm kind of talking about that there. The, the second chapter about um, kind of regionalism uh, and about midwesternism and also about the idea of the institution as well is 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 is. Can I pause you there for a second and just ask? Oh, yeah, the yeah, ghost, sure, yeah, Did yeah. you draw on uh, Timothy Jacobs' work at all? Uh, he did about ghosts. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, t- 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 Timothy Jacobs' work gets cited in a big way in that chapter. And actually, I you know I really think that. It is it, that was never published uh, that that piece about about ghosts because this is part of his right, thesis. It's just a dissertation, and I the think. The, uh, the brothers in okay. Kandenza. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that piece on the the brothers uh, Karamazov and Infinite Jest got published. That's a really good article. There's another part of that that thesis uh, which is on. Uh, which is online, which can be found. You can you can find that. It's called the eschatological imagination. Oh, I have it. 
Oh, no, I have it. Yeah. That guy actually taught in Kelowna, and I emailed him like years ago and was like, hey, I'm thinking about doing a master's on Wallace. Any programs in Canada that you'd recommend? And so we had a bit of a back and forth. Mm. That was cool. Well, I, I saw him at the... The New York... He sorry, was at yeah. the New York conference, right? Yeah. He, he yeah. was. That's where I met yeah. him. Yeah. No, he's a fr- I would say he's a friend of mine. So, I mean, but he was one of the first, I think, who I had read who took the idea i think it's really interesting about narration i was i was going to ask if you dealt mm. with sort of issues of narration and ghosts at all there or is it more like representational uh, no i think that the the idea of narration is is always absolutely tied up with the the idea of ghosts in wallace because i mean if you look at a mm. uh, a uh, a story like uh, good old neon which is i mean you know i i, I found myself kind of you know trying to kind of forensically pull apart the layers of narration in that story when i was discussing it because obviously i get that gets discussed in a big way in the ghost chapter because it's about a ghost um and you know it's almost i mean it is basically almost impossible to thoroughly pull apart the layers of narration in that story they are so uh, kind of interwoven and they're so it's so hard to ever tell always who is being spoken to or where that conversation is taking place or whether it's taking place in you know a number of places simultaneously and i think that is one of the huge strengths of that story which i i mean i think you know one of the advantages of reading and rereading and rereading wallace is that you um you eventually you know certain pieces really present themselves as being absolutely you know amazing you know his 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 very best pieces and i think good old neon is one of them like i i don't Mm. i don't know if he ever um you know i I don't know if if that level of writing that he's doing in good old neon is you know as good as it gets for me uh from wallace i agree Um, agree. so so i think the 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 ghosts and the narrative thing yeah they're absolutely they're absolutely connected and i do cite um uh timothy jacobs quite a bit in that chapter because i just think the work he did on 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 ghosts in wallace is really fantastic actually and uh and Mm -hmm. uh and well worth everyone's time yeah Cool. So the chapter on regionalism, I assume, is a lot about the Pale King, is that, or is there more to it? Well, um, basically, the the, um, the the chapter on realism, uh, on, oh, sorry, on regionalism, is is to do with um, Wallace's sense of uh, kind of Wallace's sense of uh, himself as a program writer, as a kind of institutional writer, mm-hmm. and how much this is connected to the. The, the fact that his fiction comes uh, much of it as you as you said earlier in fact comes from the Midwest um, and actually the way that the book is structured I don't actually deal with the Pale King at all until the final chapter in which I talk about the kind of con- the construction of that book and then I kind of um, address all the elements of the previous three chapters specifically to the Pale King so that's the kind of that's the kind of big mm. conclusion so I come back to kind of talking about the Pale King as, and, and, and the Midwest West uh, there, and in fact, one of the readings that I I do of the Pale King as a, as a Midwestern novel in that in that last chapter is that I um, I talk quite a bit about um, the idea of it as being uh, re- really interested in the way that. Um, kind of capital works in the midwest in the way that capital kind of sucks out the center of um of of kind of regional towns and 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 small cities and kind of uh creates uh these kind of weird kind of circular shapes because he's really interested wallace is always interested in circles and cycles and these kind of circular shapes so he's really interested i think uh, much more politically 
um, in the Midwest in that final um, in his final novel in The Pale King I think uh, he, he often tends to be a bit more performative about the Midwest he often tends to see it as a bit more of a trope or a kind of motif or, a, mm. or something to play with in a quite kind of uh, yeah in quite a kind of playful way in something like Westward The Course of Empire Takes Its Way but I think he, he's um, he's much more kind of heartfelt about the actual you know the economy of the midwest and and the character of the midwest in in as it as it relates to to kind of human beings in 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 the pale king yeah oh, that hmm. i mean that sounds wonderful and i'm definitely going to you know yeah. read that but what i really am curious about is that section about the pale king where you get into the details mm. of what sort of is the pale king and how did wallace mm. imagine it and you know for me when I was in the Ransom Center and saw this document that Michael Peach had sort of you know, indexed everything he took out of Wallace's uh, house, that sort of was an eye-opener to me of how Wallace maybe did have this sort of oeuvre of like dialogic works that were in conversation with each other and some of it just happened to end up in the pale king some of it happened to end up in oblivion or even brief interviews mm. so did, do you get into that level of detail of like biography of like how did he you know the timeline that he was writing things uh yeah absolutely i mean it's not it's not kind of I would I wouldn't necessarily say it was biographical, yeah. but I would say it is it's historical, definitely. So basically, I take so for the first the first part of that final chapter, I take the entire ten year period, ninety seven to two thousand and seven, which is the period during which he was basically writing the Pale King in one way or another, and mm. um, basically I kind of. Um, kind of almost like forensically lay out what he was doing in those periods of time and I, and and as a way of doing it i kind of split his compositional periods into three because i think there are three distinct compositional periods there um the first is when the novel was called sir john feelgood and it was about pornography um mm. uh, and then that's kind of bracketed by the release of brief interviews with hideous men in which much of that idea the ideas of pornography and sex kind of disappear into that collection and then like mm -hmm. s secondly there's the there's a period um uh, up until about 2005 where the novel is called glitterer um and there's an enormous amount of material and there's i mean there's just so much material on that novel that uh, that is not not out there you know so there's all the stuff from sir john feelgood and there's a lot of stuff from from glitterer that is um uh, that, that is in there which is uh, which is which is available in the archive but you can also absolutely see why Michael Peach did not just throw everything in the kitchen sink at, at the Pale King because the the thing is that a lot of the this extra material is not additional to what is in the Pale King but it's kind of an alternative version of it so the novel has like uh, so many kind of different openings. So in in my book, that you you'll you'll get to see the kind of the opening to Sir John Feelgood, but you'll also get to see the opening to Glitterer, which is both of which are completely different to the opening to the Pale King. Um, so these it's it, it's 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 a it's a kind of difficult uh, it, it's it's kind of difficult to piece these things together because so often they're they're actually kind of the same thing. They're actually mm. the same. Uh, they're actually doing the same thing so they can't all be kind of represented in the same book but then i think the thing that um was was one of the things that was most fascinating to find is that once oblivion is published um 
and I think you know we, we if you've read the Pale King you've read Oblivion you can kind of understand that um, a lot of the material for the Pale King went into Oblivion right so um, the soul is not a smithy is part of the Pale King there's an early version of that mm. of that story that has Drinian in the classroom there's an early version that has Nugent in the classroom um, then there's uh, th- there's a later version um, uh, th- that has kind of different characters from the Pale King in it. Uh, Incarnations of Burned Children is Drinian's uh, childhood story um, oh, originally wow. and then that ends up in yeah yeah um, and then um, uh, Mr. Squishy is also part of the Pale King originally takes place in a slightly kind of tangential world to it I he didn't mean to for make you to spoil the whole book Dave you, hmm. can save, you can save some revelations <laughs> for the book <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, oh, there's, awesome. there's much. There is much in there. Uh, I, I mean, really, I am honestly only kind of breaking the surface of what's of what I discovered. You know, there is there is so much there, mm. um, and uh, yeah, I, I lay it out in some detail, basically. So we get to see how all those mm. kind of de- extra areas uh, kind of kind of develop. Um, there's yeah, the, the, there is there is a lot going on in there. That's cool. What's the final page count, Dave? I don't. Oh, I don't know actually because I've not. I've not had the proofs yet. It's probably going to be a, around just over two hundred pages. I think something like that. Nice. That's great. And September is the approximate release. Yeah, day? beginning of September it should be. Uh, so, cool. so yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm. I, I've. It's one of those things you kind of you've had your head in it for so long uh, that it's it's mm. it's. I'm just really now looking forward to getting it out there and you know hopefully people are yeah. people are going to be able to take stuff from it and really um, kind of dig into it. That, that that's that's all you can really hope for with a uh, with with a critical book is that other other people are going to read it and res- and respond to it. Uh, so yeah, that's that's my yeah. hope for it anyway well i, I can't That's wait to awesome. read it and I, I i've been looking forward to it for a long time and um i really want to thank you for coming on the show today talking with us that was and a pleasure i'm yeah, still man. thinking about the pizza you and i had together last year in chicago <laughs> we, we we had some incredible pizza and i was like man this is truly like an epic pizza level i was like when you're in chicago go get some deep dish you know I, I was talking about that pizza yesterday. You know, it's left a, it's it's left a, it's left oh, a serious wow. mark on me that pizza. Um, I mean, it was it was quite simply the biggest pizza that I've ever seen, uh, and the deepest pizza that I've ever seen, and something like that. You know, that's a that's a that's a marker. That's a pit on on the mountainside. That you know. <laughs> It, it was it was really a great experience. So it's fun to talk with you again here today in the first day of April. 2016. I'm sad. I'm going to miss the conference this year. They moved it to the middle of summer, and I'm not going to be able to make yeah. it. So, uh, yeah. Dave, are you planning to go this no, year? No, I, I mean it's it's uh, it's a question mm-hmm. of money as well. I'm just not going to be able to. Uh, for yeah. various things yeah. are happening but yeah um, I'm not going to be able to make it this year maybe next year maybe next year yeah cool well we'll, we'll look forward to yeah, that yeah. <laughs> awesome Brilliant. well that brings us to approximately the end I think Dave where can people find you online where can they check out what's going on with uh, your stuff on social media or uh, academic stuff where can they find I'm on, you uh, I'm on Twitter and yeah I think if you I think if you just type in David Herring Liverpool on Twitter uh, then, then you'll find me. And yeah. there you are. Uh, lots of discussion about um, Twin Peaks coming out of your social media accounts, which is great. Oh yeah, oh, there's going to be even there's going to be even more in another year's time, right? Yeah, if it ever happens. I'll, I think I've said I'll believe it when I'm sat down watching mm. it. You know. Yeah, totally right. 
That's great. Well, thanks again, Dave. Oh, pleasure. And Matt, where can people find The Great Concavity online? We're at Concavity Show on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can email us, concavityshow at gmail.com. I still have some of those bookmarks from the Pale King in case anyone oh, yeah. wants some. <laughs> Uh, I gave away a bunch and mailed a bunch out all over the planet. There's still got more left, so hit me up uh, at gmail.com if you want a bookmark. Excellent. Right on. Cool. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs> Don't beseech me for the answers you seek. Either one of you sitting near a garbage truck? No, I'm not, but I'm hearing that too. Really? Yeah. Dave, are you near like an open window or something? No. I'm wondering. Just just, Just curious. No, I've got like no noise at all. Okay. Huh.